If you will, just join me in a time of prayer for a minute. God, I pray for nothing but joy uh, from this passage. God, I pray that the sorrows and the deep struggles and the pain and the suffering, Father, that these people have dealt with all week long, Father, that you will show them that you as a kind and gracious intermediary have, have borne their pain and their struggles, Father. You are not blind to it. You are not far from it, Father, but you see You hear and you know the battle belongs to you. And God, you stand on our behalf and we thank you for that. So Father, help us as we open up your word, as we read about Jesus' baptism. Father, I pray that you will help us to know you better by the end. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. It may seem to be an elementary statement to you, but without Jesus, the incarnate son of God, there remains a massive gap in redemptive history. Most of you would probably say, well, duh, right? Without Jesus, there's this massive gap in redemptive history. The overall testimony of Scripture tells us that without Christ, none is righteous, no, not one. Scripture even goes so far to say that we all, every single human throughout all human existence, that we all have turned aside to rebellion against God. Now, this problem's illustrated in God's Old Testament sons, right? You have Adam, who, according uh, to Luke, held the title of the Son of God. He was made to be the perfect image of God, to enjoy a perfectly harmonious relationship with his Creator. And yet, because of his sin and his own idolatrous desires, he was drawn away to try to dethrone God and become God himself and reign over his own life. He failed to be the God-pleasing son. He was kicked out of the garden. He disowned his father with his sin. Now, we think that's bad enough, but then God sets it up again in Israel, where he calls Israel his firstborn son. And he tells Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go so that they may serve me. God didn't want them serving the Egyptians. They were serving the wrong masters. They were serving the wrong gods. And so he delivered them out so that they could serve him with full devotion. So he brings them out with these mighty works, mighty powers, leaving no doubt that Yahweh is God. And yet still, when they come to the wilderness, they prove that they are not the God-pleasing son. God's firstborn son fails. In Isaiah chapter 1 and 2, God laments over his firstborn son, and he says, Children I have reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That being said, by the time of John the Baptist, by the time we see John standing in the river, there had still been no God-pleasing son who perfectly fulfilled righteousness. Do we realize that? At that moment in history, and this is the backdrop that sets Matthew's gospel up, there was no one who pleased God in and of themselves. No one righteous, no one, not one, No one able to please God and be the God-pleasing son. Righteousness was incomplete, unfinished, undone. It was a task that was left still to accomplish. So it leaves us with this tension and this question. What then? Who will come and stand in the gap? Who will be the God-pleasing son who 
fulfills righteousness and leads his people back to a right relationship with their creator. Not a beautiful moment of, of just irony. Jesus is standing in the river now. And Matthew chapter 1 through 4 shows us that Jesus is indeed the God-pleasing son that we have waited for. He is the God-pleasing son who fulfills righteousness. He's the God-pleasing son who restores fallen humanity. Now, without going into too much detail too early about the implications of this truth, suffice it to say that right now, this text about Jesus being that God-pleasing son who fulfills righteousness is meant to bring you hope and encouragement about your status with God and about your life with God. As we will see, it's because Jesus, the God-pleasing son, fulfilled righteousness and because he allows us to be unified in him, that we now can become God-pleasing sons and daughters who practice righteousness. So, we're going to get there. Okay, so it's going to go from baptism to hopefully you guys walking out all happy and joyful for Thanksgiving time. And if it earns me a free, I don't know, pumpkin roll or cheesecake, praise God, that's great, great tithe. So, um, anyway, that being said, I'm preaching this sermon for a reward leftovers of your desserts at thanksgiving so let's just consider matthew 3 um, and consider it in the overall trajectory of where scripture has led us to so far to fully understand what matthew's doing in this in his gospel it's important to keep the big picture of matthew in mind matthew's gospel is the story of how david's son has come to reign that eternal global dominion-making son that God promised all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, that he has come, and as a consequence, he has brought blessing upon the nations. Everything in this gospel is intended to convince us that Jesus is the long-awaited king and that we are in desperate need of his salvation. Now, Matthew does this by showing that Jesus actually repeats Israel's story. You hear all kinds of rhythms about it. We heard about it in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod tried to kill Jesus in the same way that Pharaoh tried to kill Moses and the Hebrew babies. Jesus was the son that he called out of Egypt just as he called Israel out of Egypt. And now we come to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing. What does the Jordan River and John's baptism have to do with Israel's failed history? Okay, now, we're going to be mixing a lot of high theological points here, but I promise you near the end, all of this is going to impact you directly, minute by minute of your life. So just track with me. First, between Exodus and the Jordan River, the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan River are seen as corresponding events. They're, they're almost the same event. They're repeats. Okay? God's work for the first Exodus generation in Exodus 14 is repeated again for the children who are now going into the promised land, crossing over the Jordan River. In fact, Joshua makes this connection, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you, uh, for you until you passed over, as the Lord did to the Red Sea. So he connects it, right? Well, that being said, we should see the Jordan River as a miniature Red Sea. Okay, second, there are indications that Israel's crossing over the Red Sea was a form of baptism. 
In fact, Paul takes us there in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-2, where he says that Israel's forefathers all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses. And so you have Jordan River, Red Sea, baptism, baptism. Jesus stands in the, in the Jordan River, symbolically taking up the Red Sea event, repeating Israel's history. And if that's not enough to convince you, in the very next chapter, he's led out into the wilderness for 40 days, which corresponds to the 40 years that Israel lived in the wilderness. And here's what he does. He does what they failed to do. They were tested. Same words are used. They were tested. They were tempted. And what happened? They failed. Jesus was tested. And not just by demons and not just by little miniature irritating, you know, little pygmy goat type demons, right? But by Satan himself, the champion devil. And he, like David in front of Goliath, defeats this massive tempter doing what Israel has forever failed to do. So I think in order to appreciate what's happening in the baptism, we have to see that Jesus is reliving and fulfilling Israel's failed history. Now, that tells us what the baptism was for. Okay, and so keep that in mind as we're going through it. He comes in at a moment when there had been none righteous, no, not one. He comes in at a moment when everyone that bore the title Son of God, Adam, Israel, when all of them had failed. And he steps in, he takes their place, he is numbered with the transgressors, he sets himself up in the stead of the felled son. He aligns himself with those who had fallen, he aligns himself with those who were not enough. He aligns himself with those who had shortcomings. He aligns himself with those who rebelled against God. He stands in the gap when nobody else could stand in the gap. Now, with that massive introduction, we're ready to actually read the text. If uh, you're a visitor to our church, this is not new. I typically have long introductions. Um, and then I preach the sermon that I just introduced. And then I conclude the sermon that I just introduced and then preach. And so by the end, you'll get the point. Verse 13 begins in this way. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, the first thing to note about this verse is that Jesus' actions are very deliberate. It's not as if he was on his way to Jerusalem for Thanksgiving and happened to see Jordan standing, uh, John standing by the Jordan River and thought, oh, there's, jo- there's John, let's go be baptized in the Jordan River. That's not what's happening. This is a deliberate move from Galilee to the Jordan River. It's a 25-mile walk, right? Now, in the days that you can't just hop in the car and go on a good drive, okay, to walk 25 miles means that you intend to do something. It's purposeful. You don't just go out on a 25-mile trek. So Jesus leaves Galilee, comes to the Jordan for the purpose of being baptized. That's why he came to John. Now in verse 14, John recognizes Jesus, knows who he is, and he expresses his surprise. It says this, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? His confusion is understandable. If you remember back when we first saw John the Baptist in, in 
Matthew, uh, then you'll understand that John's baptism was one of repentance, right? Who needed to be baptized by John? Well, anyone who had sin. Anyone who needed to have the baptism of repentance. That was who he was after. He even included the holy Pharisees and Sadducees as those who needed repentance. They were not worthy of the coming one, and they needed to prepare themselves before judgment has come. And now, for the first time ever, John the Baptist meets someone who doesn't need his baptism. It's amazing. And the way that Matthew writes it, it is meant to just sit on your mind like that. Can you imagine Jesus bursting through the front doors and saying, Hey guys, I'm here to be baptized. Like, we wouldn't expect that of the Son of God, right? This is, this is the one who John had just said, There is one coming worthier than me that I am not even worthy to carry the sandals of his feet. And now that one wants to be baptized by John. Proper confusion. Jesus doesn't need it. He's got no sin to repent of. He's not unrighteous. So why is Jesus seeking baptism? That's the question of this text. Why is Jesus seeking baptism? Well, John gives us the answer in verse 15. So let it, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting... For us to fulfill all righteousness. The purpose of John's baptism, is, of, of Jesus' baptism is stated right here. It's not for repentance. It's for righteousness. Now the word fulfill is important to the gospel of Matthew. He uses it a lot. And it doesn't just mean a one-to-one prophecy and fulfill. It means also to complete. This is the capstone. This is the fi- finality. This is him, Jesus, finishing what so far has been left Unfinished. So when he says, we must fulfill all righteousness, he's saying, I've got something to complete. There's an unfinished task that all humanity has left undone. All humanity has left righteousness on the shelf. They have left it on their to-do list. It is not done, and I am here to complete that task, to be the righteous Son of God. He says it just like that, or at least in similar words. Had Jesus not come, I think we would have been left with this glaring question, how is righteousness going to be fulfilled? Adam had sinned and died, right? Moses struck the rock, dishonored God. David slept with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Solomon was wise and noble and rich and great, but he was also idolatrous. He was also a fornicator. He was also someone who led the entire nation to build temples to other gods. As beautiful as his temple was, it was not the only one he built. And every king that followed gets set, set up. There's the Davidic son, sins and dies. Next Davidic son, sins and dies. Had Jesus not come, righteousness would have been left undone. No one does good. Romans 3. Now, let's just, let's just think for a moment. Let's, let's suppose that it's 2019 and we still haven't seen the Messiah. The Messiah still hadn't come. Let's just play pretend for a moment here. Suppose this event never happened. And here we are. We're good Jews meeting in the synagogue. We know that there's been a promise. I promise you this. Had Jesus not come until now, you would not have fulfilled righteousness. 
It would have still been left undone in your day with you. My friends, you cannot read Romans 3 and have a, a hopeful outlook about your natural abilities to obey God. There is no one that should be able to read Scripture and walk out going, I think I can do this. It just doesn't present itself that way. Romans 3, no one does good. He says that our tongues are deceitful. He even compares us to venomous snakes. Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. We typically choose the path of the greatest destruction rather than the path of peace. In our idolatries, there's no fear of God before our eyes. We are so arrogant and bold on our own that there are moments when we actually can say we do not fear the Lord. Evaluating ourselves humbly and honestly, we are people who brood, who stew, who gossip, who backbite, who build idols, who build new idols, who build new idols, set ourselves up as arrogant and proud and boastful and haughty and make ourselves God. Had Jesus not come in 2019, been here, righteousness still would be not fulfilled. My friends, the displeasing sons of God, the the failing Adam, the failing Israel is also the failing us. We are those who have failed. So so this is the, the linchpin in all of redemptive history. Jesus must be the son. Jesus must please God or else no one will please God. You, you feel the weight of this moment. All on the shoulders of one man. No one else. If God is to be pleased with any human being, it must be because of him. No human on their own is qualified to fulfill God's righteous standards. Because we have altogether become unrighteous. Now it seems like John got it. Because right after Jesus says that, John's like, okay. And he does it. He understands that Jesus' baptism was not for repentance, but for righteousness. He understood that by being baptized, Jesus is stepping into the sinner's place. He's being numbered with the transgressors. He's literally taking on our yoke. He's taking on the mantle of failed humanity. This is condescension at its finest. He is numbered, though he's no transgressor, though he's not unrighteous, he's numbered with the unrighteous. Though he's not done anything wrong, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is, this is what the baptism is all about. Perfect Son of God, baptized as a human in order to be identified alongside sinful humanity so that by identifying with them and bringing them into him, they now would become God-pleasers and sons and daughters of God. Massive redemptive moment. The final verses tell us what happened at the moment of Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Gosh, you want to do a fun study. 
Read every time in the Old Testament that the heavens open. It'll really enrich in this passage for you. I'm sorry if I sound like Darth Vader right now. I'm dealing with a sinus cold, by the way. Um, So just bear with me as we get through this. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. These two verses are immensely important for four reasons. First, it is this passage that we see all three persons of the Trinity simultaneously in the same context. Now, there's a, there's a local pastor who, who preaches that the Father became the Son and the Son became the Spirit. He clearly hasn't read this, where Father, Son, Spirit are all together <laughs> at the same time. Okay? Three persons... One God, that's the scriptures that have been given to us. Now, that's not just a theological truth here, okay? The point of this passage isn't just to give you a paradigm for the Trinity. I think the point of this passage is to show you how all three persons of the Trinity have moved for yours and my salvation. We have the horrible tendency as Americans who don't read their Old Testament and don't read the Bible well... To think that Jesus saved us as the good son, despite his rotten and angry father. Daddy was mad. Wanted to destroy us. His son held him back. That's not the picture that we have here. You have the father, you have the son, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll just give you tip my hand a little bit. If you've ever felt forgotten or not loved... If you've ever felt unimportant or marginalized, keep in mind that Father, Son, and Spirit have moved heaven and earth to save you. I mean, it's filled in all of Scripture. The Son emerged from the water. The Spirit descended. The Father spoke. As subtle as it may be, it is telling you that the triune God is working massively, opening heavens. So that people may be saved. The father is the architect of redemption. He sent his son to die for sinners. John 3.16. The son, not begrudgingly, not because he, his father abused him into it. The son willingly came to give himself up as a ransom. Matthew 20.28. 20, what about the spirit? Do you realize it's by the spirit according to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. That's by the Spirit that Jesus was able to offer up the perfect sacrifice. My friends, that's not the end of it. Ephesians 1 talks about the Father elected before the time began. The Son redeemed through His blood. The Spirit sealed and now serves as a down payment of what's to come. I don't know what emotional state you may be in. There's some of you here that may not have a Thanksgiving dinner to look forward to. There's some of you here who that Thanksgiving may look like you waking up like it was an average day and being alone at the table with a cup of coffee with no one there to love. My friends, in the moment of your deepest, darkest loneliness, in the moment of the devil whispering in your ears that everybody's forgotten you, nobody loves you, you're not cared for, smack the devil back with truth. 
I'm sorry, but the description of someone that God the Father, the Holy Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three working for me, I don't care if you don't think I'm unimportant. My friends, we've got the greatest gospel truth around. That gospel sits on our minds and our hearts and it whispers to us in moments like that. Father, Son, Spirit moved for you. I don't think it's just emotional fluff either. I think it's true. It's just true. <coughs> Second, <clears throat> Matthew writes that the Spirit descended like a dove and rested on him. Again, meant to be read in light of the Old Testament. There's one other time that we talk, we see the Spirit rushing and resting upon someone. Um, it happens throughout the Old Testament, but typically the Spirit leaves, like with Samson, rushes upon him and leaves. We get to David, however, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. He gets anointed as king by Samuel, and we read these words. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We never read of the Spirit leaving David. And so I think in this moment, Matthew's going, hey, listen, my main point is to show you that Jesus is the Davidic king that has come to save the universe. Well, guess what? At his baptism, this is his anointing. As, as one who is baptized in the Jordan River, this is one who is anointed by God, anointed by the Spirit to be king. He stands in the waters of the Jordan River as the true king who has come to save you and I. Third, a voice from heaven declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is God's own testimony about Jesus. <clears throat> Finally, after all the failures of humanity, the true God-pleasing Son has come. His righteous life has pleased the Father in a way no one else could. It sounds repetitive. It's something that we need on repeat in our mind. No one else pleased God but God himself in flesh. And he did it so that he could intercede for sinful mankind. Now finally, it seems that God's words about Jesus merge together from two Old Testament passages. First you have Isaiah 42.1. And then you have Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. Isaiah 42.1 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, while Isaiah 42 seems to be speaking of the servant, right? When this is the beginning of the suffering servant passages of Isaiah. So he presents him as the suffering servant. But also you've got Psalm 2, verses 7 through 8, where God speaks of the son. He says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. For today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your, your possession. <coughs> I think the point... And merging these two things together is God himself is declaring that the suffering servant and the royal son are one and the same person. That's something most people in those days did not get. They expected a royal son, but a suffering servant, not so much. But God himself is, laying the, is hinting, foreshadowing what's going to happen. The Davidic son who's royal, who, whom dominion of all the earth belongs, is the same... Suffering servant would be led like a lamb to the slaughter and who would make many righteous 
through his own death. One and the same. So, all together, and this is just the majesty of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. All together, in one fell swoop, God himself revealing his plan, I have given my son to be the servant. What does Paul say? That Jesus came and he took up the form of a what? Servant. And the whole point is to show that this son is also the servant, he is the sovereign, and also the righteous sufferer. It will be through the cross that he will be crowned. It will be through death that he will have victory. It will be through the victory of his suffering and his pain and his bleeding and the nails in his wrist and the nails in his feet and the whip marks on his back and the crown of thorns on his head. It will be through that that David's son reigns. The cross is the throne. I think it just lays it out like that. Now, there we have it. You have the story of Jesus' baptism. Looking retrospectively back to the Old Testament and looking forward to Christ's death and resurrection. Why does it all matter? It matters because what is true of Christ is also true of those who trust in him. The New Testament often speaks of Christians as those who have been baptized into Christ. That is, we are now unified with him in such a way that we cannot be disunified from him. And what was his has now become ours. Now remember, I said before Jesus and without Jesus, there are no God-pleasing children. None. We're all rebellious. And yet, you hear things from Zephaniah 3, which speaks of a mighty one who comes to save. I think that's Jesus. A mighty one comes to save. And when he comes, God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Wait a second. John the Baptist connected mighty one with Jesus, one stronger than he, one mightier. He's come. And the consequent result is now that those who trust in him, God sings over them. Have you ever thought about that? That God does not delight in you because you came to church this morning. Boy, I am so glad that God doesn't delight in my week. And what I have done. And what I have thought. And what I have said to others. And to myself. And my lack of prayer. My lack of devotional uh, discipline. My lack of ability to love God in the way that I should. My lack to control my, my, my thoughts driving on Interstate I-35. I'm glad that his delight doesn't depend on that. The mighty one has come. He took my place, and as a result, God sings over me. Sings. My goodness, I wish our, there's one thing I wish about our culture. I wish we were more of a singing culture. There are cultures out there that one of the ways to express joy is just to start bursting out in the song. Lord of the Rings does it a lot, if you want to see a picture of it. Just start bursting out in the song. Can you imagine the thought of a God who sees you, sees his son, looks back at you, sees you in his son, and burst out in the most beautiful song you've ever heard? 
about you? That's crazy, isn't it? God was pleased in Jesus. And now he's pleased with us. Now, this doesn't mean that we can sit back and passively just do whatever. Because now God's pleased with me, right? I don't have to do anything to please him. Well, no, because he is pleased with us, we should continue to live lives that please him. The consequent result of it all is that we should obey his commands. We should do what he says. We should, we should seek to please God in the way that we treat others, in our humility, in, in the way that we condescend to serve. And we love, we, The fact that God is pleased should lead you to be more pleasing. Not that you can please him more in Christ, but that you continue to be pleasing. <clears throat> if you've now been made a pleasing aroma to his nostrils, why well, try to stink it up? I've got children, so that's a live illustration. (laughs) If God has now in Christ made you pleasing to him, why then would we do things that are unpleasing? So it's a natural consequence of it. Still more, God called Jesus my beloved. My beloved. It's not a a coincidence that beloved now describes believers. Ephesians 5.1, for example, says, Therefore be imitators of God. As beloved children. The same can be seen in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. Where believers are called brothers loved by God. The point is. That in Jesus. By grace through faith. You are now the beloved son or daughter of God. God loves you. As cheesy and as, as coined as that phrase may sound to you. Because you've seen it on buttons or t-shirts or whatever. It's biblical. God loves you just as he loves his son. Because he loved his son, his son pleased him. You now are the God-pleasing beloved of God. Finally, the same spirit that came and rested on Jesus at his baptism, the same spirit that led him out into the wilderness, that empowered him to defeat sin and Satan, the same spirit that led him to the cross, and the same spirit that vindicated him at the resurrection is a spirit that lives inside of you if you trust in Jesus. Doesn't Romans 8.15 say that we now have the spirit of God and so we cry out to him, Abba, Father? The consequence of having the spirit is we're adopted. We're children. God is Abba. God is Father. And now... Because we have the Spirit, we can live in a way that pleases our Father and presenting our bodies as a holy and pure sacrifice, which is our acceptable service. Now, all this goes to show that Christ was baptized to identify with us sinners so that we as sinners would be unified with Him. We are in Him. He is in us. God is in Christ God is in us, God loves, uh, God's love is in him, and thus it is in us, and therefore for all eternity we get this big spaghetti ball of triune love that cannot be untangled. Amen. He takes us, places us in Jesus, raises us up with Christ, and raises us up to be seated with him in the heavenly places so that for all eternity we may have the immeasurable riches toward ki- of kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
Paul needs to scale down his prepositions, but still, it's an amazing beauty of the truth that because we are unified with Christ, we have what is his. We are heirs, not slaves. It's the one thing that sets us off from Muslims. We are not slaves. We are sons and daughters, heirs the eternal glory of God in Christ Jesus. You want to know what's true of us for all eternity? We are the recipients of God's abundant kindness. What's going to happen in all eternity? God pouring out kindness upon kindness upon kindness upon kindness, immeasurable riches of kindness for all eternity. Not because of what you've done, but because of who you're in. Now, it's a lot of theology, right? I just came back from an evangelical theological conference um, on the West Coast. It wasn't that great um, to be on the West Coast. It was 50 degrees and rainy all day. Um, but uh, I've, I've learned from being at that conference that things cannot be just theological. So let's just ask this question. What kind of theology that we have here? And let's think about the theology that we have, the, the union with Christ that's Truly a theological point. What does it have to do with your daily life? How does it change the way you view your job, your friendships, your marriage, your parenthood? Well, obviously it's something as big as the Son of God standing in our place, making it so that now we are the beloved, God-pleasing children of God, should have an impact on our daily life. Right? That's a big truth. And it's not just something that should sit on the recesses of our mind. It's something that should reach the depths of our hearts and overflow to the extension of our hands and our words, right? I mean, you just think about this massive meteorite jumping into a puddle, right? The puddle doesn't stay. It's displaced. This truth comes into our life like a meteor crashing down, and it it displaces the old self. And creates an entirely new self. Now, let me tell you how I personally have benefited from truths like this. If you're like me, you are someone who, when you are by yourselves and alone, you tend to count your weaknesses. It's just easy. With no one else around you, you're someone that can make a list of all your failures better than anyone else. You don't need the devil's help to do it. You do it yourself. I mean, it is easy. You know, you lay in bed and you think about all your sins and I shouldn't have had that thought and I shouldn't have done this. And Man, I just don't think I was a good enough dad today. And, you know, my wife and I had a scuff, you know, as, as you, know, I, you know, I don't know, maybe she didn't buy my favorite ragu sauce or whatever. Yeah, I went to my job and I had an opportunity to share the gospel and I just missed it. I just, just blew it, you know, didn't take it, chickened out. Had a friend and, 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 and completely maligned their character in front of somebody else, and I've hurt their feelings, and now I'm just, just sitting here, and the accusers just beating me over the head with my failures and my shortcomings. Well, the question of our union with Christ comes into play during moments like that. The German reformer, he's quirky as he is, Martin Luther, was prone to these kinds of attacks actually felt as if the devil was 
physically whispering in his ear about his failures and sins and struggles. And he had a lot of people in his church that struggled with the same thing. As he continued to, talk, to, to think about and read about his union with Christ, truths like what we've seen today, he came to, to give this kind of counsel. Someone asked him, suppose someone walks into his office, knocks on his door, and they say, Pastor Luther, uh, I've got a problem. Um, they, devil's beating me up today. I, I'm over aware of my sins and my failures. I just I can't get up out of bed most days because I just know how horribly fallen I am. Here's the counsel he'd give. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. And I can imagine he was pretty quiet up to that point. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. Why? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is, there shall I be also. Amen. My friends, it's okay to talk back to the devil sometimes. You're right. You're a failure. You don't deserve what you have. I, and I promise you, the list of sins and shortcomings that you have is not nearly as long as what God actually knows about your sins and shortcomings. <laughs> Typically, when the devil starts whispering about all these past struggles and failures, he's only giving you a tenth What of it? I'm unified with Christ. Jesus took on flesh because Jesus took on flesh because he was baptized and allowed himself to be numbered with transgressors because he carried the cross, because he bore my sin personally, bore my sin, because he died my death, because he was buried in my tomb, and because he rose again, he promises me a resurrection like his. There is therefore now no condemnation because I am in Christ Jesus. My friends, happy Thanksgiving. Now we mustn't stop there. Because that's great, but that's only half the truth. Jesus died to free us from condemnation, but his death also means that we're free from slavery to sin. Why stay in what Christ has saved you from? What sense does it make for him to open up the jail cell and for you to continue staying in that nasty old jail cell when the door is wide open? What sense does it make to stay in Egypt when Pharaoh is defeated? In Christ... You are free from sin, which means you can defeat it. You can help it in Christ, not on your own, not in and of yourself. You have no strength in and of yourself, but in Christ, you actually have the ability to not do wrong. Doesn't mean you will be perfect, I guarantee it. But it does mean that you have an immense armory behind you in the war against sin. Here's what Paul says. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried there, therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might, what? Not walk in the oldness of life. 
walk in the newness of life. He concludes, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also you, imperative here in this sentence. So also you yourselves are dead to sin and you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin and Satan is your master no more. Now that we are unified with Christ, we should no longer be unified with things that are against him. Those who are baptized, immersed into Christ, must not immerse themselves into sin. Continue the fight against lust, against backbiting, against gossip, against hatred, against pride, against covetousness. When you go to your family this week and you're dreading it, remember you are in Christ. No matter what they say about you, no matter what your daddy says about you, no matter what your sister lies about you, no matter what your great aunt Petunia gossips about you, you are a God-pleasing child of God. And you now have the ability to love when you're not loved. And to be thankful when there seems nothing to be thankful for. That's the logical progression. So we've gone from the Jordan River to Thanksgiving week 2019. What Christ began at the baptismal waters on that day, he will one day finish in you when he returns. And we will see him and we will be like him as he is. Let's pray. As we pray, I don't want to just jump into a prayer myself. I want you guys to just stop and in silence, reflect upon the truth that you've heard today. You need to know how personal this actually is. Just in quiet reflection, just think about the truth that you've been given. And I'll end this in prayer here in a moment. Father God, these truths are enough to exalt the lowest, humblest sinner and to de-elevate the haughtiest, prideful person that there is. The truth of the gospel is the great leveler, Father. It's for everyone, and we all need the truth that Jesus has come, that he is identified with us. He baptized, he was baptized to fulfill righteousness, to complete it for us, to finish what we could not finish, to do what we could not do. And now we stand in him as God-pleasing sons and daughters. We thank you, God, that you delight in us because we're in Christ. We thank you it's not dependent on what we say and what we do. Though, Father, now that we delight you, we pray that you will help us to delight you in word and action. I pray for this Thanksgiving week, Lord, that as an act of obedience to you, that we will thank you. Lord, if for nothing else, 
for the fact that you as the triune God have moved heaven and earth to rescue worms like us. You haven't made us slaves. You haven't made us worthless, Father. God, you have elevated us into your glory, seated us in Jesus Christ, the high King of heaven, reigning Davidic son at the right hand of your throne who is coming back. We are seated in him, and as long as he lives and stands on our behalf, as long as he remains our high priest, which will be forever, we will have a place in your presence. Change us and transform us by that truth. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.